Well, I can see that not everybody's at the lake or in Colorado or in Florida. Some of you are here in this gym this morning worshiping with us, and some more of you are worshiping online or where you are. Welcome back, wherever you are, to our journey through the life of, you got the genealogy down, Abraham's most famous, or one of his most famous, great-grandsons, and one of Jacob's most famous son, Joseph. We left off in the story of Joseph's life last week with Joseph's brother Judah offering to exchange his own life for a younger brother, Benjamin. There's been quite a change in Judah, as Lee noted last week, since we began this journey through this incredibly dysfunctional family. He offered to appease what Judah thought was the wrath of, and of course he was wrong. He thought because, well, quite frankly, Joseph had been messing with these guys for several months. And uh, he thought this, he was dealing with the second in command of ancient Egypt, and it was very upset. To, so to appease his wrath, he offered to exchange his life for his brothers. And we're going to see this week that this move to offer himself, called Joseph to emotionally break down and come to tears and finally reveal his true identity to all his brothers that were there before him. This is the climax of the Joseph story this morning. It's not the end of the story. We're going to continue for a few more weeks as we continue our journey through the life of Joseph and to the end of Genesis, the book of Genesis. But it is the climax. So before you turn to Genesis chapter 45 and read this powerful climax, I want to talk a little bit, even before we get there, kind of a prelude to just warm you up about some of the themes that we're going to run into this morning, because they're big, they're big themes, they're difficult things. And I'm going to ask you to ponder these themes even before we get there as I read the text to you. Questions that have haunted God seekers, quite frankly, for thousands of years and questions we still wrestle with today if we're serious, deep thinkers. Two primary themes of the text are going to be, number one, the power of forgiveness in our lives and the lives of those we choose to forgive. Now, that's not difficult intellectually to grasp. This first theme is just quite frankly sometimes hard to live out. Sometimes harder for others than maybe you, sometimes harder for you than others, and it depends on the offense or the offenses that have come against you you ask to forgive. The next one, the second theme, is pretty difficult to get my mind around at least. It's our acceptance of God's sovereign right and design to use evil for good purposes in our lives and the lives of others. Just saying it bothers me. That one is more difficult to understand, and it has lots of ramifications that are even more difficult than that statement to understand. Some questions around that second thing that I'm going to ask you to wrestle with this morning are, number one, does God cause or simply allow evil? Probably the most difficult theological question there is. I'll give you a brief one-sentence answer. It doesn't satisfy me, nor will it satisfy you, but it begins to help us understand. Evil comes from created beings, either angels or humans, 
choosing to do evil. But God can use evil that he allows and manipulates, quite frankly, for his good purposes. Number two, why did God create Lucifer or even Adam, knowing that each would rebel against him and his value system and cause horrible suffering as a result of their choices to rebel? Short answer. He wanted beings that would choose to love him willingly. Therefore, he had to give them what I would call the evil option, the option to choose evil. Number three, does God's sovereignty, and that's the key word for this morning, God's sovereignty, his right to rule, his ultimate, total, complete power and control of this universe. Does his sovereignty relieve you and I of our responsibility for our making bad choices? The answer to that one is two letters, no. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Number four. Why do terrible things sometimes happen to good people, Christian people, God-seeking people, if God is really sovereign and has the power to control? Now, we're going to dig into that one in detail after we get to the text. At a macro level, at a big level, is the sound as bad as it seems like in my ear? Okay. Guys, uh, do I need to pick up a hand mic or, or are we going to get it there? We'll try for more for a minute, but if it doesn't get any better, I'll pick up a handheld mic and go from there. At a macro level, there is suffering in this world because our ancient ancestors chose to join an angelic rebellion against God and his value system that apparently was in progress before they arrived on planet Earth. There was a rebellion going on when Adam and Eve arrived in the garden and they chose to join it. The consequences of Adam and Eve's choices brought a curse on the planet and horrific pain and suffering. And we're still reaping a terrible harvest of devastation because of their choices. Want some scripture on that? Go to Genesis 3, Romans 8, 19 through 23. Paul says the entire creation is groaning and travailing under the weight of this curse on the planet. There is a mystery to some of all this that involves what the Bible calls the secret things of God. But mere chance or randomness is not a sufficient explanation or even a good explanation of why terrible things happen to Christians or undeserving people. Again, one of the central themes of Scripture is God's sovereignty and his right and ability to rule his universe. His sovereignty is highlighted over and over again in Scripture. We'll see it today. Some more basic truths. I'm just going to warn you. If you're one of those people that thinks very logically and likes lists, this is your day, okay? <laughs> if you're not, 
bear with me. I'll get to a good, feel-good story in the end, okay, for the rest of you, all right? I promise I'll get there. But I'm going to do a lot of lists today. So if you're taking notes, you're going to have to write fast. If you really, really are into the list I'm going to share with you, just email me and I'll send you my entire sermon. The manuscript has all the lists in it. They're all on the Bible app if you're using that. Some basic truths to start with. God does not sin. He's good. I believe that he's good all the time. Sometimes I don't understand his goodness, but God is good. He does not sin. Another basic truth, God does not condone sin. Number three, God does not in one sense cause sin, but as has already been stated, I mean, I'm going to keep stating it over and over again, because this is the theme of the text. He clearly permits and uses sin for good purposes. Number four, again, God's sovereignty and his relationship to evil does not relieve us of our responsibility to do right. As I tell my kids and I've been telling them and my grandkids, and as my mother told me before me, just do right. Or as any good counselor would tell you when you're in a mess because of your own bad choices, just choose to do the next right thing over and over and over and over again and you'll find your circumstances will slowly change nor the consequences of our own poor choices, our so-called free will. But again, one point of day story is that God is sovereign and he's actively and intimately involved in the details of your life. I pray about everything and I hope you do too. I believe he's involved in every part of my day and the Bible bears that out. We can be thankful for that, sort of. Even though at times the exercise of his sovereignty in my life does not feel like blessing. Example from today's text, the 22 years of slavery and imprisonment that Joseph went through. He didn't know the end of the story, that movies will be made about his life and have this wonderful, blissful ending as he was experiencing it. So, turn with me now and let's drop back into Genesis chapter 45 and pick up the story of Joseph's interactions with his brothers in ancient Egypt some 4,000 years ago. Genesis chapter 45. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it. It's okay to bring a Bible to the church. I encourage you to do that. And if you don't and you're going to use your phone or the Bible app, you can do that or you can look on the screen. Verse 1. Joseph could no longer control himself. He's been messing with these guys for months. They've gone back and forth. I don't have time to tell the entire story. It's long and complicated. Before all his attendants, so he cries out to these Egyptians that are all around him. Just get out of here, basically. Leave my presence. And they left. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And he wept so loudly, verse 2, that all the Egyptians heard him, even though they were gone. And Pharaoh's household heard about what was happening. And Joseph yells out to his brothers with passion and emotion, I am Joseph. Can you imagine how stunned they were? Put yourself in one of these brothers' places. These guys that first tried to kill him and then later sold him into slavery. Is my father, before he's asking about their father, now it's my father. Is my father still alive? But his brothers 
could not answer him. They weren't able to speak because they were terrified at his presence. Joseph is a type of Christ, and he's almost a type of God. We'll talk about more about that in a minute. So there's other passages of scriptures that may be coming to your mind if you're a Bible scholar. It's like Moses, when he's been out there tending sheep for about 40 years, and he walks aside, and there's a burning bush, and all of a sudden, he realizes he's in the presence of God. And he's stunned, and he can't speak, and he doesn't want to look at the bush. It's that kind of thing. It's like Isaiah, when God shows up, and he sees God or the glory of God. And he says, woe is me because I am a person of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. It's like Job after he's been griping and griping and griping and he had a right to gripe. God's sovereignty came down heavy and hard on him. Sitting outside of town in a garbage dump, his friends of prosperity theologians telling him, you had to have done something bad to deserve this. You had to have done something bad to deserve it. And he's saying, I want an audience with God. And he said it over and over, and then God shows up. And what does Job say? I repent in sackcloth and ashes. That's the feeling of this passage of Scripture. And Joseph says to his brothers now, come close to me. I wonder, is he going to kill us? <laughs> come close to me. And then they came close to him and he says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. I don't think that relieved the tension much. <laughs> no. The anxiety level just kept going up. And now do not be distressed. That feels better. Don't even be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Do you smell sovereignty in the text? He's going to say it three times, in fact. God sent me. God sent me. God sent me. This is the first time he says it. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five, there'll be no plowing, no reaping. Seven years of famine like the dream. But God sent me ahead of you. Second time he says it to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by this great deliverance. It was God's plan. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Third time he said it. He made me father to Pharaoh. He may have been older than Pharaoh. We don't know exactly what that phrase means in, in the Hebrew. But he's saying, I am like a counselor to Pharaoh. Pharaoh depends on my wisdom because I'm connected to the God of the universe. And he speaks to me. I'm Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Arguably the most powerful or the second most powerful man in the world at that time. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down here. Don't delay. Come to me. He said, I'll provide for you. You shall live in the land of Goshen. Be near me. All your children, your grandkids, your flocks, your herds, all you have, I will provide for you here because five more years of hard times and famine are coming. Otherwise, you'll become destitute and perish. Verse 12, you can see for yourselves, he's talking to his brothers now, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it's really I who am speaking to you. It's me, you know it now. Tell my daddy about all the honor according to me in Egypt and everything you've seen and bring my father down here quickly. I want my family restored and reunited. I wanna be near him. 
Then he throws his arms around his brother Benjamin and he weeps and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them and afterwards they had a long talk. <laughs> he talked with them. Some comments about the text. As Lee, Kevin and I noted several times already as we have preached through this story, Joseph has proven to have a history of operating his life from a divine perspective. He has a deep, rich relationship with God that developed over those 22 years in slavery and prison. He is a great example for us to follow. Invest in a relationship with God. Have a history with God. There's no way that Joseph could have forgiven his brothers as deeply as he did for the evil they did to him if he had not spent the last 22 years of slavery and imprisonment developing a deep relationship with God. No way. We don't get a lot of insight into what it looked like. If you want to look at other great men of the Old Testament, we do. David, do we do. Daniel, we do. We don't get a lot of insight about how Joseph did that. It apparently he did. Obviously he did. Next thought, I've said it already. Forgiveness is a powerful force. It's a powerful force in our own lives and in the lives of those we forgive. When we forgive, we're obeying Jesus' command. I believe it's unforgiveness is the ultimate sin. It's the antithesis of grace. We're obeying Jesus' command for us to forgive others, and we're modeling the forgiveness and grace of God we have received. And by the way, we're this side of the cross. Joseph wasn't. The fruit of Joseph's choices to keep doing what counselors call forgiveness work is obvious. The deliverance and the restoration of his family. That's the fruit of his forgiveness. Joseph is an Old Testament type, a prophetic forerunner, one of those signposts that points toward Jesus. How? I'll give you three ways. There's probably lots more. I did a lot and a lot of reading for this talk and uh, lots of commentaries, even other books of the Bible. And, and these, are, these lists come from other people's knowledge that I'm gleaning from and maybe some revelation on my own part. But here's a list. Number one, like Joseph, Jesus' family on earth did not recognize him. Do you remember that? He came into his own and his own wouldn't receive him. John 10, excuse me, John 1, 10 through 11. But Joseph knew his brothers like Jesus knows us. God knows you intimately. David said in Psalm 139, 1 through 4, he knows every part of your being. He was there when he reformed. Number two, Joseph loved his sinful brothers who sold him into slavery and wept over them <laughs> as Jesus wept over Jerusalem whose people would in a few days later crucify him. That's Luke 19.41. Thirdly, Joseph, like Jesus, was raised up to a position of high authority after being cast down. And all will bow before Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, just as Joseph's brothers bowed before him, He'd seen it earlier as a kid in a prophetic dream that came true. One of the readings I did was the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just not a fun book. 
It's not. Uh, uh, in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon raises a variety of arguments throughout the book. They're not good arguments. You got to be careful when you're quoting Ecclesiastes, okay? Uh, he raises a variety of arguments that seem to question God's sovereignty. He, he, he seems to be saying life appears to be just randomness. Meaninglessness is the word, the way it's translated. But then he concludes by saying this, that even though Solomon says, I don't understand all this and we don't understand all that's going on in our lives, we are called to trust God by faith and obey his teachings. Loose paraphrase, walk in the light that you're given. Now, we have been given much more light this side of the cross than Solomon or even Joseph. And God is calling us daily to walk in the light that we've been given. And today, God is calling us to come near to him as Joseph called his brothers to come near to him. And someday, wow, but you look forward to that day, God will say to you personally, Matthew 25, 34, come, you who are blessed by my Father, and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of this world. And there'll be no more suffering and we will be separated forever from the presence of evil and its devastating effects. The last thing I'll note before we start talking about some of the reasons for suffering is this. In the historical account of the life of Joseph, God's faithfulness is put on display and his mercy, and they're contrasted to the depravity of mankind, particularly the brothers in this case. Now, Let's address the difficult questions that pop up. The first one, some reasons that God's people are, quote, good people. I know that none of us are good, but the Bible calls goodness in places, people who are pursuing God, Christians in the New Testament, this side of the cross, God's people in the Old Testament, God seekers, God followers. Why do we suffer? And I'm not saying Christians suffer more than non-Christians, but why do good people suffer? I'm going to give you 13, that's a good round number, 13 reasons that I came up with in all my readings. There's probably 20 or 30. Um, but I want, to, I want to just help you a little bit to put our minds around and help me put our minds around some of this. Some reasons that God's people suffer according to the Bible. Number one, suffering and trouble can cause, these are in no particular order, can cause God's people to pray. Some examples from scripture, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles chapter 20, you remember that story? An army of many nations is coming against him and he knows they'll wipe out Judah. And what's his response? To call for a national day of prayer and fasting and bring everybody together in Jerusalem and get together and pray. Suffering and trouble and tragedy and adversity can cause people to pray. Peter, when he was in prison. <laughs> Paul and Silas, when they were in prison. Prayer and worship were their response. Stephen, when he's being martyred. What an incredible prayer is recorded in Acts chapter 7. 
Even Jesus in his humanity, Matthew 25, verses 35, 36 through 45, Jesus goes to the garden and in his humanity, does he want to go through with it? No. If he, in fact, he prays, God, is there any other way? I know we wrote the script this way, way back there, but I don't want to do this. Is there any way we can do it some other way? The answer three times was no, do it my way and your way. And he says, okay, I'll go through with it. Suffering can cause even Jesus and his humanity to turn to God in a new and different way, in a more powerful way. And suffering causes God's people to pray. Number two, suffering and affliction can cause us to turn to God's word. Psalm 119.50, Romans 15.4. Number three, suffering teaches us the unsatisfying nature of this fallen world system we live in and causes us to want to separate ourselves from this world as we live here. First John 2, 15 through 17, Jim, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of the life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world and the one who governs this world system and your own sin nature. Don't love the world or the things in the world because this world is passing away, but the one that does the will of God will abide forever. Number four, suffering causes us to thirst for a deeper relationship with God, like David in the desert when he was fleeing from Saul and wrote Psalm 63. Number five, adversity and trouble shatter the delusion. This is particularly true of Americans. The self-delusion of self-sufficiency, the delusion of self-sufficiency, it takes away the fuel for pride. Second Chronicles 33, 9 through 13, Psalms 20, 1 through 7. Number six, God sometimes uses adversity and suffering as a tool of discipline in our lives. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and Hebrews 12, 7. Sometimes suffering is a test to see if we'll remain faithful. Peter says that in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Sometimes suffering is used by God to refine us and prepare us for a greater work he wants to do in and through us. Malachi 3, 3. It's even said that of Jesus. I don't understand it. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. Nine, sometimes suffering is used to teach us perseverance and develop our character. Romans 5, 3 James 1, 2, and 4. Number 10, suffering allows us to share in some small way in the sufferings of Christ so that we obey Luke 9, 23 and take up our cross daily and follow him. Number 11, Paul went through a terrible time apparently. He doesn't give us a lot of details about it, of, of stress. I, I don't know exactly why or how they were being persecuted in a certain place. And he writes a little bit about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says, it was to the point that we wanted to check out. Have you been there? I have. <laughs> when you wanted to hit the eject button out of this life, I don't call it having suicidal ideations, but there's times when life gets so hard and it seems it's never going to let up that you just want to hit the eject button. And Paul says, I got there. I wanted to die. I wanted out. Tremendous depression is what he's talking about. 
He said, we suffer in that way so that we could comfort others when they suffer in that way or some other way. Second Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 and verse 6. And the, number 12, the way we handle hardship and suffering. Have you been around a friend that went through a terrible time that had a deep relationship with God and you couldn't believe they were holding up? I have. Did to share about one that's in the audience right now. I've watched her suffer through a terrible season in life, a staff member. It's been a testimony to me. I'm supposed to endure under suffering. Sometimes our problems and our suffering are a testimony to other to the way we handle them. Second Corinthians 1, 6 and 7, verse last one. Sometimes our problems are suffering, and this one's the kind of the duh when I put it in the end. <laughs> are simply related to our own poor, stupid choices, okay? I mean, the Bible, this is all over the Bible. Sometimes we simply reap the harvest of our own behavior. That's been true lots and lots of times in my life. Hosea 8, 7, Galatians 6, 7. Now, having said all that, and that was a lot, none of these reasons fully satisfies me. None of them fully explain all the awful things that human beings do to other human beings are there or our extreme deviations from God's value system, significant sin. They don't explain, and I don't want to make light of suffering by just this list of 13. Some of you have gone through terrible things or you are going through terrible things. I don't even know that or will go through terrible things. But there's some big things in this world that I don't understand, like genocide, like slavery, like sex trafficking of children, like abuse, like racism, like violence, like wars, like pride and arrogance and disease and mental illness and sexual immorality and perversion and deviations from God's standards. And I don't want to make light of any of this stuff by 13 simplistic explanations. But here's the promise. Someday God will do away with sin, evil and suffering, and make all things new. Now, one more list. Well, actually, there's two more lists. Number one, three reasons that unbelievers suffer. You could probably come up with a lot. This is just basic logic. Number one, they too live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Genesis 3. Number two, the Bible says God is trying to get their attention and wants to bring them to salvation, 2 Peter 3, 9. Number three, as judgment. Judgment for sin sometimes happens in the here and now, <laughs> not just in eternity, in the here and now. And it's a foretaste or a warning of eternal punishment, Matthew 25, 46, Romans 1, 18. Now, I told you I did some other reading. I told you I read the book of Ecclesiastes and a whole bunch of commentaries and lots of other Bible passages about suffering and prosperity and, and, about, and just why bad things happen to good people. I also read Psalm 73. It's kind of a classic. If you want a one-chapter summary of some of this stuff, go to Psalm 73. A guy by the name of Asaph, 
uh, and I preach this, I actually love to preach this chapter of the Bible. He's having a Job-like season in his life, and he doesn't understand why. And he gets down, like I do at times, and he starts feeling sorry for himself, and he starts looking around, and some of the conclusions he draws are a little bit irrational, but some of them are dead on. And, and he starts asking questions about God and questioning the goodness of God and questioning things until he goes to the presence of God and begins to talk to God about these things. And then he gets what we've already called the divine perspective on some of this. So this is a little Psalm 73 mixed in with a little Ecclesiastes and a whole bunch of other Bible verses that address the apparent injustice of good people suffering and the wicked prospering. And it doesn't always turn out like it did for Joseph. Some people suffer to the end and never know why. Number one, this world, as Asaph noted, is not all there is. Eternity looms before each of us this morning. Eternity is looming before us. And if you're over 50 or 60 or over 70 like I am, it's looming a lot closer. But regardless, it looms before each one of us. And there will be a higher tribunal of justice someday. I don't exactly understand all that, but he will make things right. Number two, a deep relationship with God, even in the midst of suffering, is more satisfying than the prosperity of the wicked. It is. It is. If you'll just tap into that. Number three, the things that the wicked pursue, wealth, power, sex, pleasure, fame, will not satisfy. Even in the here and now, as Solomon found out and he had it all, <laughs> they will not satisfy. They won't. They won't bring contentment for them or us when we pursue those things apart from God, and I have at times, and some of you have pursued those things. They will not satisfy. Number four, many times, let's don't get too down this morning. How about a little prosperity theology thrown in just to balance the scales a little bit, okay? Many times the righteous do prosper. Many times when we do, God does bless. And God calls on us when he blesses us to steward our power, our wealth, and our success well and to use it responsibly for others. There's lots of Bible passages about that. Number five, many times the wicked do suffer on this earth as a result of their poor choices. So there's just five observations from the Bible and from human life. Now, I'm done with list. I promise you a story. And I ran across this one, and I'd never heard of this guy before. I'd never heard this story. And it's a story that illustrates some of these principles, a story from church history from the last century. Uh, let's put, yeah, that's John Sung. He was born on September 27, 1901, in the Fujian province of southeast China. He was the son of a respected Methodist minister. And by the way, the Methodist church in 1901 in China and in America 
they were considered wild-eyed charismatics, okay? Uh, it's not the same. I'm not slamming the Methodist church today, but it's just a fact. They were the radicals. They were the ones that talked about Jesus in public. They were the ones that promoted personal salvation and conversion. They were the ones that pursued holiness in their lifestyle. They were the, the evangelicals, the radicals of their day, Christian-wise. Well, John came to Christ in the home of a godly Methodist minister at the age of nine and was baptized. He was a very intelligent and bright young man, super high IQ, and at the age of 19, he left on a boat for America to study at Wesleyan University in Ohio. He later went on to study at Ohio State University and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He earned multiple degrees during his seven years in America, including, among other things, just randomly, a PhD in chemistry. <laughs> After several years of study in America, hear me on this, don't miss this, sitting under a steady diet of worldly, godless philosophy and liberal theology, John Sung found himself morally backslidden and struggling to believe and embrace the faith of his childhood. There's a cool term for what he was doing today. We call it deconstructing. However, on February 10th, 1927, God showed up. Around the same time, the revival was breaking out in China that would last 10 years. John Sung began to repent that day of his sins and his unbelief, and he recorded it in his diary. And to recommit his life in a radical way to Jesus Christ, and he had a powerful supernatural experience in his dorm room. And he was filled suddenly, he said, with unexplained joy, just overwhelmed with joy, similar to the experience, and I've shared this story before, of the great French mathematician and scientist Blaise Pascal, who nearly 300 years earlier on a Sunday afternoon encountered God in a similar way, and he wrote in his diary that day, fire, fire, fire. So like Pascal, John's son was radically changed for the rest of his life, his short life. Sung began to preach to his classmates and his professors at Union Seminary. What did he preach? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this drastic change in Sung's behavior, he was a quiet, intellectual, reflective type guy when he wasn't preaching. But the change was so profound that his professors thought he was insane. And these are the days of mental institutions in America called insane asylums. And John Sung's seminary professors had him committed to an insane asylum for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in seminary. True story. He was incarcerated, locked up for six and a half months, but he was allowed to have a Bible. He read the Bible 40 times from beginning to end, he said, and he prayed continuously when he wasn't eating or sleeping. 
Later, he would describe those six months of incarceration as his true seminary. During this time, the Holy Spirit did a deep and profound work in John's son. He returned to China at the end of 1927. And because of his academic achievement, he could have gotten a teaching position at that time in all this Chinese college or university. But he committed the rest of his life to preaching the gospel in China. He married and he became a traveling evangelist for the Bethel Bible School of Shanghai. He and a few other people formed an evangelistic team committing to spreading the revival fire throughout China by preaching and singing. When John was not preaching, he was still a quiet and subdued man. But he preached with passion and power and emotion. He paced back and forth on the stage, sometimes moving out into the crowd with prophetic anointing. He would call out specific sins in people's lives. Wouldn't want to be in the audience. <laughs> Hundreds of miraculous healings are associated with his ministry. He would personally lay hands on as many as 500 people to some evenings when he decided to, and many were healed. A heavy spirit of repentance accompanied him. Whenever he preached, along and accompanied by a tender message of God's grace and his unfailing love for every sinner who came to Jesus. Sometimes hundreds of people would come under such conviction that they would begin to weep and cry out in the audience for mercy and salvation, openly repenting of specific sins in their lives. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ in his meetings. And he also kept a massive prayer list of people's needs, which he interceded for several hours every day. In spite of his reputation for healing, we're talking about suffering now, John Sung suffered terribly with what was described as intestinal tuberculosis. I looked it up. It's a legitimate disease even today. Toward the end of his short life, the pain was so intense he had to preach in a kneeling position. Like the great English revivalist before him, George Whitfield, John Sung literally preached himself to death dying just before his 43rd birthday. It's the end of the story. Jesus made a promise to his followers. And I've quoted it several times. I'm going to keep quoting it. That we should cling to this promise as we pass through the sufferings of this sin-cursed world. It's John 16, It's not one we like to claim. In this world, Jim, you will have trouble. But take heart as you're in this trouble and this suffering. I have overcome this world with its sin, its misery, and its death. And if you put your hope in me, you will overcome it too. What about you? Do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you know him like Joseph knew him? Do you know him like John Song knew him? Do you know him like Blaise Pascal knew him? Like George Whitfield knew him? Like I know him. 
I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm going to boast in him. I know him. Do you know him intimately and personally? Again, going back to Asaph, I'm going to close by reading scripture. He was King David's worship leader. And he records in Psalm 73, going through a time of terrible suffering. We get no details of it. And after he gets with God and gets the divine perspective, he closes with these words, and I'll close with them. Psalm 73, verse 23. In spite of the suffering I'm going through, yet I am always with you. He's talking about the experiential presence of God. You hold me by my right hand in my suffering. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you're going to take me into glory. I'm going to get heaven, eternity with you. And the sufferings of this world, as Paul said, can't be compared to the glory that awaits us. This is just a dot on the line, as Rick Warren said, that stretches throughout all eternity this life is. Whom have I in heaven but you? David said in another way, you're my one thing. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. They will. <laughs> Our bodies are deteriorating. No matter how much we fight it, I was out fighting it yesterday, walking with friends, biking, trying to stay in shape, trying to fight it. But ultimately, my body, like Lazarus, even after he was healed, is going to fail. And your heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion. How long? Forever. Those who are far from you, Asaph says to God, will perish. Those who are not pursuing you, those who are pursuing only the things of this world, they're going to perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, who have no interest in your value system or your ways. But as for me, it's just really good to be near God right now. Even in the midst of my suffering, it's good to be near God, the experiential presence of God. And I have made the, what's the key word for this morning? The sovereign Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, my refuge. And I'm going to tell of your deeds. <sighs> you know what? We have more than Asaph had. We have more than Joseph had. We have more than Solomon had to be thankful for this morning. We're this side of the cross. We know what Psalm 22 means. We know what Isaiah 52 said. For his stripes healed us. We have access to the atoning sacrificial death of the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. We know what salvation is like. We have access to the Holy Spirit of the living God. So let's stand right now and close by singing how great is our God. And if you don't really know him this morning, if you want prayer for anything, prayer team, come on up, stand around the front. Come see a member of the prayer team or come see me.